The rest of you, if you would move your fingers, tap, touch, turn, whatever it is that you do to get to the book of Acts and chapter 3. We are going to read together beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried, whom they used to set down daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But when Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him, he said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And leaping up, He stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were recognizing him that he was the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's, full of wonder. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and and the faith which is through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, his Christ would, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, to whom, have, of, uh, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. To him you shall listen to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel And his successors onward also proclaim these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets 
and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Lord, these are your words. We pray that you would give us insight into them, help us to understand them, and all of that to the glory of your son's name. Amen. Every culture, every nation has phrases that live in the hearts and minds of its people. It is the language of lore. It's it's the kind of stuff that looms large in the collective conscience of a nation if there is such a thing. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Give me liberty. Don't tread on me. Four score and seven years ago. Ask not what your country can do for you. With liberty and justice for all. Let freedom ring. I have a dream. Let's roll. All of those phrases are etched into the minds of most Americans, or at least they used to be. And they bring to mind a person or a place or a context or an event. And most of them stir the minds and the hearts of the patriotic. To other people from other nations or other cultures, those phrases have little meaning of any. But to us, they are significant and they are full of impact. And as we have just read through Peter's sermon, or at least Luke's summation of Peter's sermon, again, as I said last week, this sermon was longer than it takes to read that passage. Luke is pulling out the the salient points. We have a, a, a brief but accurate summary of all that Peter conveyed on that day. We need to understand, we need to see that as Peter begins to explain the miracle that happened with this lame man, that he does so for a purpose. He does so because he wants to preach Christ. The miracle wasn't the point. Jesus is the point. And so Luke, as he records the language of Peter uses loaded language, it's triggering language. It's language that connected the dots from the Old Testament prophets to their current context, to the events of their day. In this text, Peter provides really five names or phrases that would have resonated in the minds of his Jewish audience. These were phrases, these were names that came out of the Old Testament scripture. They were chock full of meaning. They struck a chord with those who heard. And that's why those who heard in the first century might have a significantly richer understanding than you might have sitting where you sit today. And I hope to remedy that at least to a degree. Those Jews were steeped in the knowledge of the Old Testament. They were steeped in the kind of loaded language that Peter uses from Isaiah, or as we saw in his preaching at Pentecost, from the Psalms. He's using scriptural language. Peter is preaching the scripture, which is what preachers are supposed to do. And the last time we saw this miraculous healing of a man lame from birth, 
And the miracle really provided a platform from which Peter will now preach. And I would remind you that miracles in Scripture were never simply done for the purpose of putting on a sideshow. Jesus was not a circus event. They had a purpose. They were signs. They pointed to something. Better, they pointed to someone greater. Miracles will almost inevitably in Scripture give way to a message. Miracles always have meaning. And the message is about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the focal point of all faithful preachers. He is the focal point of Peter's preaching. Peter, like Paul, proclaims Christ and him crucified. And Jesus is the emphasis of Peter's preaching on Pentecost, and he is the emphasis of Peter's preaching here. Let's pick up Peter's explanation of this miraculous healing in verse 11. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's, full of wonder. This man is standing before a crowd. He's standing next to Peter and John. He's clinging to them. The word is a strong word. It means seizing or clutching him. He's not clutching them because he can't stand on his own. You remember he was just walking and leaping. He's clinging to them because they're critically important to him. These were the men who proved to be the human means through which Christ had brought him healing. He had two new buddies. And he had a new lease on life. The one who was broken for over 40 years and now is whole. He can stand. He can walk. He can leap. He has his independence. He, he, he has now the opportunity to work. He can make it to the bathroom on his own. He has freedom of movement. And I think it's really, really difficult for any of us to actually grasp the kind of expansion of this man's world that he must have experienced at the healing of Christ. And far, far beyond all of that, I think there are plenty of reasons in this text, which I won't explain today, but I have reason to believe that this man, in fact, had new life in Christ. And that life transcended anything that had happened to his physical body. We'll come back in the following week to evaluate that, that claim, that he, in fact, became a believer. He is clinging to Peter and John, and you'll note the text says that all the people ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's. And they were full of wonder, there is this massive, enthusiastic, eager, murmuring crowd that is forming around Peter and John and this man and presumably the rest of the disciples and some within the church. This portico, as it's called, that is Solomon's, it was sat on the east side of the, of the court of Gentiles. It's very, very large. It holds a lot of people. It was a porch with a roof with colonnades that held it up. It provided shade and seating, and it was a place where Jesus taught in John 10. It was a place where the church will continue to meet Sabbath by Sabbath. It is the place where Peter here preaches this sermon. It was a place that could hold a lot of people. I just love the fact that Luke records the fact that, that, that people ran 
that they were full of wonder. Remember what people are wearing in this day. They're not cruising around in a pair of Nike shorts and some, some Hoka tennies, right? These are people in, in, in uh, I say thongs. Uh, these are people in uh, flip-flops. These are people in shoes that got laced up. These are people in long draped dresses and they're making a bolt, to get over, to hear the explanation for this, which is one of the most amazing things they have ever seen. They're running. They're not walking. They're not sauntering. They're not in a lazy jog. They are bolting to see and to hear from Peter. And they gather in this courtyard, and it says in verse 12 that when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, stop there. Again, Peter, just like on the day of Pentecost, is appealing to his, his, his brothers according to the flesh. He's speaking to Israel, the covenant people of God. And this sermon will begin and end with a reference to God's promises to the patriarchs. Look, look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers... That is a clear reference to Israel's God. You look down at verses 25 and 26 at the end of this message. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, look at verse 26, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The gospel is to the Jew first. The Jew has priority. And it will, of course, go out to the nations it has come to you and to me and all of that by the grace of God. But here, note the fact that this is a message going out again to a Jewish audience. And Peter, in this message, is highlighting God's intention to bless Israel and all the nations ultimately through Abraham's offspring, who is Jesus, the Messiah. But before he can get there, he's got to deflect the glory that this crowd wants to place in his lap. He's got to pry the, the, the fingers off of his legs and get them onto Jesus. He's, he does not want to sign any autographs. He doesn't want a line of people lined up to meet him and, and to have him like, like he were a faith healer touch. He, this isn't Benny tossing his coat around and showing off the fact that he can accomplish these mighty things. No, this is the humble servant of Christ uplifting the servant of, Christ, the servant of God. Peter wants out of the spotlight. He wants out of the headlines. And he poses two questions. He says, number one, why do you marvel at this? That seems like an odd question. What do you mean, why do we, mar why do we marvel at this? Peter's baiting them. We know this man. We recognize him. And it's not every day that you see someone who's been lame for 40 years leaping about the temple, praising God at the top of his voice. Or Peter says, secondly, why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? 
This word for gaze is the same word that's used back when, when the, the disciples were gazing at Christ going up into heaven in the ascension. Here the people are gazing, wondering, marveling at Peter and John. And Peter says, whoa, time out. You've got this wrong. There's nothing wonderful about me. There's nothing significant about us. And you can hear the echoes, can't you, of Paul in, in Corinthians. Uh, some are of Apollos, and some say they're of Paul, and, and others of Cephas, and some of Christ. Who, who are all those men? Has Christ been divided? I and Apollos, we, we're just servants. Here's Peter in that same frame of mind. And beloved, you should be of that same frame of mind. When you feel that thing creeping up in you that wants to claim this or to claim that or to, to draw the acknowledgement of people around, understand that you are a glory hog seeking to take what belongs to the king of glory himself. Oh, we ever have a tendency, don't we, to elevate man. Jesus in John 6, 32, after he had fed the masses, has to explain to them that the manna that was given throughout Israel's exodus was not a gift from Moses' hand. He says, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Acts 10, if we were to flip over there, we find Cornelius bowing before Peter, and Peter says to him, stand up. I too am just a man. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. They heal a man. And all of a sudden, the, the residents of Lystra are coming with garlands and with cattle. They're going to sacrifice to, to Paul and to Barnabas because they perceive them to be messengers from, from the gods. Paul and Barnabas are tearing their, tearing their garments and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of the same nature as you. Listen, the surgeon's scalpel and the pilot who lands your plane, I'm thankful for them both. Be grateful for them both. But don't forget the one when you hit the tarmac safely who, who brought that plane in for a landing. If all you see is the pilot, you've missed it. You have breath today. If you think it's primarily because you've been eating asparagus and a little less Haagen-Dazs, you, you miss the point. Take care of your body. It's the temple of God. It's a wonderful thing. It, it, it moves and it breathes and it enables you to serve Christ. But, but don't get it wrong, folks. God is behind all of this stuff. Oh, we lift up the people who have the degrees after their names. My, do we lift up the athletes. Wow, do we look at the rich. Wow, do we consider the, the man who preaches the message about Christ more than we think about Christ. And we cannot do that. I think I've told you before, we're at the Shepherds Conference and there are people lined up at the door in a long line and 50, 60, 70-year-old men, some of them, waiting to sprint down to the front. And I think to myself, I, 
I don't think to myself because I need to think the best about people. But I, the, the long lines for the signatures in the book and the, the, all, the, all the adoration of the holy men, and, and to their credit, I've watched Sproul, I've seen MacArthur, I've seen Mahaney, I've seen Lawson, these men who seek to deflect all of that stuff. Don't contribute to it. All of us are brethren. All of us serve in the capacity that God has gifted us to serve in. We are all men, and the best of men are men at best. Brothers and sisters, may we be quick, maybe we be swift to elevate the one to whom all glory is due. It isn't about our power, and it isn't about our piety. Peter says, let me tell you how this man now stands. It is entirely by God's initiative. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Again, this is loaded language that might just fly over your head and you think as an American in the 21st century. I've heard that before. But this, this strikes a chord with these people. This, this is going all the way back to the revelation of the name, the covenant name of Yahweh before Moses. You remember when that language was used in Exodus 3 and verse 6 and then again in Exodus 3 and verse 15. He's drawing their minds back. He didn't have to use this terminology, but Peter uses it for a point. He's drawing them in. On the Temple Mount, that very place that was so central to the worship of Israel. And he's saying, the very God you have come to worship today, it is your God. It is the God of our fathers. It is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is Yahweh. And that language was instantly recognizable to any Israelite. And, and, and Peter has woven all the way through this text, and again, we'll have to take the second half of it in a couple of weeks, but all the way through the, his sermon, he keeps talking about this God, their God, and he's active in the affairs of life. He is, in verse 13, the God who glorifies his servant. He is, in verse 15, the God who raises Jesus from the dead. He is the God, in verse 18, who fulfills his promises. He is the God, in verse 20, who sends times of refreshing. And also, in verse 20, the God who sends the Messiah. He is the one who raises up a prophet like Moses. It is this God, the God of Israel, who is behind the restoration of this man who now stands before you. And Peter says, the very God that you worship is the God who has glorified his servant, Jesus. That also is loaded language. That is pregnant with meaning. <laughs> Jesus means Jehovah saves. You remember when, when Joseph, who's a little unglued about Mary being pregnant, and it 
I suppose is understandable. And the angel appears to Joseph and he, he tells her, listen, she's going to bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. There was no other option. Why? Well, because Jesus means that he, this child, will save his people from their sins. Our Lord's very name conveyed his purpose and destiny in this world. Beyond that, he calls him his servant, Yahweh's servant, God's servant, Jesus. And that terminology also exploded like fireworks on the 4th of July in the minds of these Jews. The allusion is to the suffering servant that's found in Isaiah 52 and 53, found in other passages in Isaiah as well, but particularly this section of Scripture. We just heard it read, and we're going to go back there at the end of the day, but God's servant is portrayed, isn't he, in that text as an exalted servant in chapter 52 and verse 13. He has exalted his servant, Jesus. And then he is portrayed in that passage as the suffering servant, the one who bears our sins, the very Lamb of God upon whom all of our iniquities are placed, who bears away the the sin of the world. And then it is through that servant that, that God's people receive redemption and healing and restoration of relationship. And as a result of that suffering, God again highly exalts him, vindicates him. What is Peter doing? Peter's saying, this Jesus is that guy. He is connecting. He's building a bridge between these things so that they begin to see the part that they've played in the tragedy that took place at Golgotha. And from our vantage point, the victory that took place there. And Peter will point that out to them as well. Miracles, as I said, are signs, and the healing of the lame man is about more than him being given the capacity to walk again. It's a demonstration of the power and the restorative power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cripple, in other words, has been cured because, because Jesus has been glorified. Boyce says this, from his place of exaltation, Jesus had endowed his disciples with the power to act in his name and to perform mighty works such as he himself, Jesus, had performed in the days of his bodily presence among them. Yes, Jesus has ascended and gone to heaven, but greater works than these shall you do. And the church here going forward in the power of Christ is seeing this mighty, this mighty miracle done in the name of Jesus. You want to know why this man rejoices? Jesus. You want to know why this man is restored? Jesus. You want to know why the lame man leaps like a deer? Jesus. That's the point. And Peter says, God, your God, has glorified his servant Jesus. The wonder and power of the servant has been put on display in the healing of this man. God has elevated him, put him on display right before your very eyes. Now, what did you do with him? Verse 13, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. 
But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the author of life. God glorified his servant. God magnified his servant. God lifted his servant up. God has put his servant in a very conspicuous place before all as the great miracle and the the great healer, the the great servant of God who brings wholeness and restoration to his people. And he says, you betrayed him by delivering him over to the authorities. You denied him before Pilate. Another loaded term. Pilate was not a beloved ruler of the Jews. They despised him. They wanted to be done with him. And Peter, in a sense here, is saying, do you understand that even Pilate had enough sense to recognize that Christ was innocent? I think it's six times that that Pilate says and, and declares the innocence of Christ. He says, you disowned Jesus. And here we have another title for Christ loaded with meaning. He calls him the holy and the righteous one. The holy one, Psalm 1610. Have you heard this before? You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And he's called here the righteous one. Isaiah 5311 The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And not only did you disown him, but do you understand what you did? You traded him for a murderer. You traded him for Barabbas. The Messiah for a murderer. Imagine it. Jesus, the innocent and the holy and the righteous son of God, And he adds another term. He says, the author of life you put to death. How ironic. Oh, Yahweh's choice servant, Isaiah 52, 13, will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But he was, Isaiah 53, 3 and 4, despised and forsaken by you. You despised him and you did not esteem him. He was pierced and he was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see all all of this? Peter is just drawing them back and dunking them in Isaiah 52 and 53 to, 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 to bring conviction to them and insight to them that they did not possess. He says to them, you put to death the author of life. And that word author means originator, the source, the very fountain of life. Life is weird, isn't it? It's sort of like light. Scientists don't know what to do with it. Is light particles or, or, or how, does, how, how does that whole thing work? Scientists sort of don't know. They kind of they talk about it in vague terminology and they, they, it's kind of mystical to them. It, it, it goes beyond science. What? There's something beyond the mind of science? Yes, there's a lot beyond the mind of science, but nothing beyond the mind of God who created light and is light and he is life. What is life? I don't know. We all assume we know because we're living 
But life itself can't be defined by science. Is it a beating heart and a functioning brainwaves? Or can people be dead even while they live? First John 1 John 1.4, in him, Jesus was life. First John 5.20, he, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. John 5.26, the son has life in himself. What is man, when you think about it, but animated dust, right? There was Adam made from the dust of the ground, and God breathes into him the breath of life. You breathe today because God wants you to breathe today. You have life today because he is the life, and he is the one who has given it to you, whether physical or spiritual or both. Oh, Jesus reminded Martha, I am the resurrection and the what? the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You put him to death. Who is this man you killed? He is Jesus. Jehovah saves. He is my servant who suffered and is now exalted. He is the holy one who will not undergo decay, and he is the righteous one who will justify the many, and he is the very author of life. It is this one that you have put to death. Can you imagine what the weight and the realization of all of this brought upon them? The, 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 the poundage of this conviction probably isn't calculable. MacArthur writes, Peter forcefully brings home the point that the Jews were open enemies of the very God that they professed to love, the very one they had come to the temple to worship, the one whom God had exalted, they had delivered up, disowned, and executed, end quote. But that's not the end of the sermon, is it? What did God do with him? You put to death the author of life, verse 15, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And that should be loaded language for you at this point. That ought to cause you to draw back to the end of Luke's gospel where we read that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he told them that the Christ must suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You see, here again, and this is impressive, and this is comforting to us, beloved, the message doesn't change, does it? Every message, and you're just going to watch this going, I, I, I'm going to keep pointing it out to you over and over again until it sinks deep within us, that we preach Christ and him crucified. There is no other message. There is no other gospel, unless you want to be accursed. There is no other gospel. This is the singular truth. This is the singular reality. This Christ is the singular mediator between God and man. This is what we have. This is why we don't, 
We don't do smoke and mirrors. This is why we don't have lights and fog machines. This is why we don't have Starbucks in the lobby and you just drink sort of okay coffee because the point, <laughs> the point isn't coffee. If you've seen Field of Dreams, and I know I'm dating myself, but you know the old line, if you build it, they will come. How many churches have succumbed to that philosophy? And beloved, how does that compete with the all-sufficient message of the all-sufficient Savior? Would I get up here to try and convince you that I can be funny as a late-night talk show host? Would I get up here and try to wheel and deal and do, do all kinds of things that might cause your ear to be tickled, all of that stuff demeans the message of the gospel and demeans the sufficiency of Christ. Just preach the word and let the Christ of his word come out of those pages by the power of the Spirit because it is the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. If you read the commentators, one of the challenges of the book of Acts is that you just keep seeing the same message repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And people say, man, that doesn't preach. <laughs> that is what we preach. And that is all we preach. And if you find that message boring and dissatisfying, well, then you've missed it. Because it is that message which is the power of God unto salvation. It is that message which is the sole message of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't even about those messages, you know, 10 steps to a perfect family, 7 steps to a better marriage, 18 steps how to make more money and give more to the Lord. Uh, there may be some place for those kinds of things, but Christ is the center of all of it, always. I challenge you to find that five-step message in your Bible somewhere. Five steps to being a better Jew. No, it's not there. You can't find it. That's not the preaching of the apostles. God raised him from the dead and the desires of these people were ultimately frustrated and they were frustrated by God's mighty demonstration of resurrection power. The power of death could not hold the author of life. Verse 16, and on the basis of faith in his name, Peter finally gets to the punchline. You want to know how this guy was healed? Here it is. It's on the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus. He gets very specific. It's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. They saw him. They knew him. It is faith, the faith which is through him, which has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. This again, it is the point of the healing. It anticipates, doesn't it, the kingdom to come at the end of the age when 
we, we will see Christ returning and establishing his kingdom in, in, in the millennial kingdom. And, he, and, and there we are going to see even increased restoration of all that's wrong in this life. And that will give way then to the eternal kingdom where sin will molest no more. There will be no lame, no blind, no hearing impaired. There will be no bad backs. There'll be nothing of the sort. Whatever it is that ails you, brother or sister in Christ, will ail you no longer. And all of it is on the basis of faith in his name. Blind eyes seeing and deaf ears hearing and lame legs leaping and mute tongues shouting. I was thinking that would be a good like 12 days of Christmas, a much more accurate one, right? Blind eyes seeing, deaf ears hearing. I mean, we could, we could try it. All of those things were prophetic indicators. Again, boom, fireworks are going off in these people's ears in the, before their very eyes. When they see a lame man from birth healed, they're thinking, oh, we've heard about this. Peter says, yes, you have, and let me connect the dots. It's related directly to faith in the name of Jesus on the basis of all that he is. I love that song today, Daryl. <laughs> you think Daryl and I get together during the week to work all that out. It, it, it's beautiful. Listen, it's on the basis of all that Jesus is. It's on the basis of all that he accomplished. It's about the essence of Christ and his, his works. That's why this man stands before you. It's interesting, Peter says that it's by faith in that name. And we need to be careful here. Whose faith does Peter have in mind? Was it Peter's faith that enabled Peter then to be the, the mediator through which this healing occurred? Or was it the lame man's faith? The fact is, the text doesn't tell us, and it could be either. Sometimes, in Scripture, it's the faith of the healer that's emphasized, and other times in Scripture, it's the faith of the one being healed that's mentioned. And here's where we need to be careful. Here's where you need to think clearly. Peter is preaching a sermon about Jesus Christ, and he is imploring, begging, urging them to have faith in the name of Jesus. Peter is not running a faith healing seminar. Peter is not trying to give us some sort of recipe for how to get healed of your physical ailments. And no one, beloved, should build a theology that blames sick people and disabled people for not having enough faith to be healed. That, beloved, is demonic doctrine. It is nothing more than a cloak to conceal the false teacher. It is, it is concealment for the powerlessness of a fake healer. I didn't say faith healer. I called him a fake healer. And that is intentional because that is what they are. The point here is not do I have enough faith or did Peter have enough faith or did... Did the, the lame man have enough faith to leap? It has nothing to do with that. The point is Jesus. Have I said that? I have said that, and I'll say it 
over and over again. The point is Christ. It is faith in that name that results in broken things becoming whole, in sinful things becoming righteous, in evil things becoming good, in the fallenness of this world becoming fixed. All of that is related to Christ and faith in his name. The lame man was just evidence. It was a vindication of Jesus, that he is who he said he was and that he does the kinds of things that he in fact did in transforming this, this man. It's interesting here, it, it can almost slip by you if you're not careful. Look again at the verse. Note that last section. And the faith which is through him, that is Jesus, has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And in some ways, this solves our dilemma with the fake healer. Because even if it required a great deal of faith in order to be healed or some measure of faith in order to be healed, where does the faith come from? The text says it is through Christ. It is faith in Christ, yes, but it is also faith through him. It is from him as a gift. And that should set off bells in your own ears. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? What is that? All of it, the grace, the salvation, and the faith. It comes from God and not from you. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you to believe in his name. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to those who have, listen to the language again, received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter calls this crowd to faith in the very Christ that they crucified Look at verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. You can hear it, can't you? This is a turning point in the message. Peter's gone from being a prosecu prosecutor on attack to now, now drawing them in. They're, they're, his tone softens. He, he brings them to the table to reason. He brings them... If you will, he softens all that he just laid on them. He gives them hope. There's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a, there's a crack here with, with light streaming through it. And, and Peter says, look, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. And so he goes from this indictment to a gospel appeal and he tells them he is fully aware that they didn't realize who Jesus was. Any good shepherd will do this with his people to help people understand, I'm one of you, I get this. Peter, Peter, Peter had a few weaknesses of his own, did he not? He says, look, I know you acted in ignorance and I know that was the case for your rulers as well. 
And sometimes when we get huffy and puffed up and self-righteous, we begin to look at other people, people who are real sinners, people who did real bad stuff. And, w- and we say, we, we somehow have this sort of us versus them kind of mentality, and we can very quickly point fingers and bring all kinds of condemnation above them. And Jesus says to us, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. You're one of them. You were once one of them. How can you now condemn them? You were once one of them. How can you be judgment, sit in judgment over them? You come out of that. You were cut out of that same cloth. Did you think you were of the pure and righteous cloth of Christ from the beginning? You've forgotten from whence you've come. And Peter comes to them now with an element of of compassion and he acknowledges the reality of their ignorance. And in so doing, he just walks in the footsteps of Christ. Didn't Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul acknowledged it too, writing to the Corinthians. He said, the rulers of this age would not have crucified the Lord of glory had they understood who Jesus was. Acts 13, Paul preaching again. He says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, neither recognizing him, Christ, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled these by condemning him. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Paul writes of these kinsmen in the flesh in Romans 10 too, and he says, you know, my kinsmen, the, the Israelites, the Jews, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They didn't understand the scriptures they had heard Sabbath by Sabbath. In fact, Paul credits his own persecution of the church to ignorance, doesn't he? He says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And when you think about it, even Isaiah 53 addresses the confusion of Israel in crucifying Christ in these words. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, we looked at Christ and we thought to ourselves, we didn't think son of God, the holy one, the righteous one, the Messiah, We looked at Christ and we thought, that guy is God's enemy. That guy is stricken of God and smitten of God. He is afflicted. He is one we could barely stand to look at. They thought they were doing God's work in crucifying him. And they had it all wrong. But beloved, this is something that we need to hear in our day and hear it very clearly. Ignorance is not excuse. Do you understand that? Ignorance is not excuse. We live in a very soft day. We live in a day where justice, frankly, is neglected and proudly neglected. We defund police. We release people who, who ought to die, frankly, biblically, for their murdering of another made in God's image. If you're just drifting along with the culture here, you're never going to really understand what's going on. We let people off the hook for a myriad of reasons. God is a God who is just. God is a God who will by no means, Exodus 34, 7, leave the guilty unpunished. Your sins have to be punished. Do you know that? Christian, do you know that? 
God is not Santa, and God does not, like I have at times, I confess, my wife's here, and it's embarrassing to admit it in front of her, but there have been times when people have come over where I've lifted the rug and just give it one of those, right? You've, you just flip that stuff underneath there and set the rug down, you figure, well, we'll get that later, but at least my house looks clean. God cannot sweep your sin or mine under the carpet. He is altogether holy, and to do so would violate his justice. It would violate his holiness. And here's the message of the gospel. You can pay for your sins eternally in hell, apart from God and under wrath and indignation, or Christ will pay that penalty for you. But someone must pay. And their ignorance is is no excuse for what they did to the author of life. It was all there for them in the Old Testament scriptures. The evidence was clear. They were accountable before God. Moses, the law, the prophets, they all wrote of Christ. Jesus walked in their midst, his words, his deeds, his character, all of those things testified clearly. By his death, and which was prophesied, and his resurrection, which was prophesied, those things, Paul says, were not done in a corner. This was not something done behind, behind walls. This was something done out and open. And it should be obvious, but they were blind to it. And they were unaware of who it was they murdered. And Peter says very clearly, you're culpable for killing the king of glory. You've disowned him. You traded his life for the life of a murderer. And he's going to call them to repentance. But we won't get there today. This is so wonderful. Peter cushions the blow as he appeals to them even further. Not only did you do what you did in ignorance, but you need to understand something else. You need a glimpse. You need, you need to take down and, and drink down and, and, and take it into your innermost being that the God whom we worship, the God whom we serve is sovereign, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is one who does whatsoever he pleases. No man can thwart his purposes. No man can frustrate him. Verse 18 but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets. All of these things which God announced before you were even breathing, he says to them. He announced these things by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer. He, God, has thus fulfilled. Culpable as they were, All that happened was precisely according to the predetermined plan of God. They had acted wickedly, it is true. But their wickedness wasn't the only principle at work. It wasn't the ultimate principle. There was an invisible hand at work. Isaiah 53, God was what? Pleased to crush him. Joseph is a type of Christ in Scripture, and you remember that great statement in Genesis 50 to his brothers who had sold him down the well. 
what you intended for evil, God intended for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And in Joseph's case, that was from famine in Egypt. But here we see the much greater fulfillment of that very principle, and that is that God, through the evil intent of men, accomplished good purposes for the salvation of sinners. He says, look, you're responsible for the death of Christ, but though you were determined to execute him, God at the same time was accomplishing his perfect plan. And all the evil that you intended toward God, God intended for good toward you. And that very salvation for which Christ died is available to them through faith and repentance. What an amazing God we serve. Beloved, that same salvation is available to each of you. You think about the culpability of these people who heard Christ, who saw Christ, who ate with Christ, who walked with Christ, who shouted Hosanna (laughs) just a week before they shouted crucify him. These people who are so intimately involved and immediately involved in the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, consider the significance of it. Grace and forgiveness is open to them. Would it not be open to you? They were guilty of disowning Christ denying him, delivering him over. Paul had persecuted the church. He was the chief among sinners, and yet Christ forgave him. Peter knew what it was to deny the Lord, and yet Jesus forgave him. Unbeliever in our midst this morning, maybe you're here and you haven't come all the way to Christ, and maybe this morning you see now the glory that Jesus is and that he has and all that he's accomplished. I tell you, that healing of the lame man is a picture, a snapshot of what he can do for you spiritually. He can take you dead as you are, lame as you are, incapable as you are of doing anything, really. And he can raise you again through faith in his son, and he can give you life. Your sin is not too great for you to come to Christ this very morning. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Isaiah 53 speaks about the sacrificial and, and, uh, servant, the suffering servant. And Isaiah 55, we, we read these words, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and drink. Come without money. In other words, you're spiritually poor. You have nothing to offer him. And God bids that you would turn from your ways and turn to him in faith and repentance. And he will give you life. Brother and sister in Christ, does the cumulative record of your sins, I know you've turned to, you've turned to Christ in faith and repentance, but, but I know how life goes 
And, and those things begin to stack up, don't they, behind the dam of, of your heart and your life, and you begin counting them, and you keep thinking, man, I have really sinned a lot. I, I'm beginning to wonder, have I sinned myself out of the grace of God? You cannot sin yourself out of the grace of God. His well is deeper than your debt. When you think of these people and you listen to this message and you consider what it was for these people in the bright, bright eastern sun to sit and listen to this message and you, th- you should see in all of this the wideness of God's mercy. You should see in all of this the love of God for sinners. You should see in all of this that the very sins that put Christ, the Son of God, on that cross was the very hand of God in in bringing salvation to sinners. And it ought to draw you to him. It's incoherent, isn't it, that, that God would love like this. But it's only incoherent to us because our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. And this memorial table before you this morning is a reminder yet again because Jesus knows how often we tend to forget the very foundational things upon which our lives hang. This is the memorial table given to remind us, do this in remembrance of me. He calls you, brother, sister in Christ, to, to, to reflect again that that Christ on the cross was not begrudging, but he was there willing. The, he was there by the predetermined plan of God. He was there because he wanted to save you, not to condemn you. Our God is just, yes, and sin must be punished, yes, and the wages of sin is death, yes. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Christ went to the cross specifically to deal with that hostility that once was in your heart toward him, that once shouted crucify. Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, You have part in that God through faith in his son. And it is that God who spared not his own son but delivered him over for us all. In this is love, says John. Not that we loved God. (laughs) Are you kidding? But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the appeasement for our sins. Lord Jesus Your very name points to the salvation that is bound up in you, in your perfections, and in your powerful work of perfect righteousness. Lord, you are the suffering servant of Yahweh who bore our sins. You are the Holy One, the Righteous One. You are innocent and undefiled. You are the author of life Life is yours and it is yours to give and it is yours to take. And Lord, you have given to your people a life that is eternal. That quality of life which we experience even now in fellowship with you and with one another and yet how much fuller in the days ahead. Lord, we thank you and give you praise for all that you've accomplished for us. Lord, you are the Christ, 
You are the anointed Messiah, the risen king, the ruling king, the returning king, the king who brings restoration. All of these things is bound up in your name. And Lord, it's by faith in your name that we have seen our sins taken from us, put behind you and in the deepest ocean where you remember them no more. Lord, what thanks can we render unto you? You are our God and our King. You are our everything. We worship you. We give you praise and thanksgiving in your great name. Amen.